Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steenberg, a 2L at Syracuse University College of Law, JDI program. Today, we are honored to have with us Adam Liptak. Adam Liptak covers the Supreme Court for the New York Times. A graduate of Yale College and Yale Law School, he practiced law for 14 years before joining the Times news staff in 2002. In 2007, he began writing Sidebar, a column on legal affairs. One year later, he became the paper's Supreme Court correspondent. Liptak was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in explanatory reporting in 2009. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He has taught courses on the Supreme Court and the First Amendment at the University of Chicago Law School, New York University School of Law, and Yale Law School. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to be here with you, Meg. So in my opinion, you have the best job in the world. How would you characterize your job? If you want to be a legal journalist, uh, it's hard to imagine a better job. The material is fascinating. Uh, The Times gives me the ability both to reach a large audience and yet write at a pretty high level of sophistication because our readership is uh, engaged. Now, there are other things in the world to be beyond a legal journalist, but if you're going to be a legal journalist, it's a pretty good job. Well, as we speak today, I want us all to visualize your world. Walk us through a week when the Supreme Court is in session, please. What does it look like for you? Where are you physically stationed? Do you write your stories from inside the court? And how does that change when you're not in session? So let's put aside the pandemic, which has kind of upended things. Uh, But the ordinary course of the Supreme Court reporter's life is that the court is for two weeks a month in business and hears arguments on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, uh, grants cases, adds cases to its docket, typically on Fridays or Mondays, uh, later in the term, issues opinions, typically on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Uh, so on those days, I'm almost always at the courthouse. And I like to go to arguments in person. It's now possible, this is a quite recent innovation, to listen to them. I don't find that nearly as satisfying. Being in the courtroom makes you concentrate in a different way and lets you scan the whole bench to see how statements made by given justices or or advocates are playing across the entire bench. Uh, And then I will typically write uh, from the press room at the court. So the courtroom's on the second floor. On the ground floor, uh, there's a press room with cubicles for people with hard passes, about 25 of us who cover the court more or less full-time. And some of my colleagues go back to their offices, their, their bureaus, I like to get right to work, uh, and I often, in a big case, have to file something quite quickly. Uh, so in a big argument or a big decision, uh, I will file something in a matter of five or ten minutes. Uh, and then I'll stay there through a second draft, which will add a lot of 
quotes and context and a sense of consequences. And then before the pandemic, I would often go back to the Washington Bureau of the New York Times about a 10-minute cab ride away and do the final version for the next day's paper. And that will allow me also to consult uh, with my editor in person. Now, the pandemic has upended all of this, but that's the broad outline of what the Supreme Court Reporters Week looks like. And how do you approach each story? Do you heavily research ahead of time? Do you look at the law? Do you let the day of the argument come together and do as you say, just sit and watch and see it all come together and then chase the details after? No, the key to the job is preparation. Um, The great Supreme Court reporter, Tony Lewis, uh, once said to me that the key to being a good Supreme Court reporter is to spend months and months preparing for those days in June when the big things happen. The the major way of preparing uh, for Supreme Court cases is in the briefing. The quality of the advocacy at the court is excellent. And if you just spend the time to read the main briefs and the Solicitor General's brief, the federal government's brief, and maybe some of the major supporting briefs, the amicus briefs, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, But I will also often interview uh, the advocates involved, maybe the parties, uh, maybe legal academics. Uh, And for big arguments and big cases, I will very often have written 800 words, 1,000 words of what journalists call B-matter, sort of background stuff that's not going to change depending on what's going to happen. And then the early version of the story will be that B-matter with a few paragraphs on top of who won, who lost, or in the case of an argument, what seems to be happening. How accessible are the justices? Do you ever walk the hallways together? Are there... Um, off-the-record conversations or luncheons together? Do you ever see the human side of them? So this is hard to answer because if a conversation is off the record, it shouldn't be discussed. Uh, There's not a ton of interaction with the justices, but more than zero. There are social occasions, and uh, some of the justices arrange off-the-record lunches, um, typically once a term. When the justices have books out, uh, they're not hard to interview. Um, So I interviewed Justices Sotomayor, Breyer uh, twice, Justice Stevens twice. Uh, Justice Ginsburg used to be uh, fairly accessible for on-the-record interviews. I interviewed her in her chambers twice. Um, So there are opportunities. Um, Not as many if you're covering the White House or Congress, but more than zero. This 21-22 term seems particularly contentious. And it seems odd to say that in the sense that the Supreme Court, obviously, if you're there, it's deal- you're dealing with contentious issues. But how would you rate this term? This term, for one reason, is an enormous blockbuster term. And journalists are you know, prone to hype what they're working on, but there's really no question. And the reason for that is the two abortion cases. There's a a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade in a case from Mississippi uh, to be argued December 1st, which is a a once-in-a-generation abortion case. We had Roe in 73, Casey in 92, and this case is very likely to revise abortion rights 
in the United States. So that that's that's huge. If that's all that was happening this term, it would be a huge term. The court is also grappling with uh, this novel law that has shut down most abortions in Texas after about six weeks. And the court let that law go into effect on September 1st. It heard arguments exactly two months later on November 1st in which some of the justices may think they went in the wrong direction initially. We don't have a decision yet. So you have those two huge abortion cases. In addition to that, there's a Second Amendment case about the right to carry outside the home, which is uh, new, new, fresh territory legally. Uh, that is also a huge case. And then there's, you know, cases on religion and the death penalty, which are more ordinary, but of course significant in their own right. Do you already, as you go, and I know some have cases have been heard, some are to come, as you mentioned, do you feel a different energy in chambers right now mirroring your observations? Yeah, I, I guess I'd say that. So the argument in the Texas abortion case and the argument in the guns case was intense, lively, and the court has revised how it hears arguments just recently, just this term, just starting in October, where instead of having a strict one-hour time limit, after each advocate concludes his or her presentation, the justices have a round of one-by-one questioning in order of seniority. And that has extended these arguments from what had been a fairly rigid one hour to something approaching two hours in the biggest cases. So you can kind of tell how big a case is by how long the justices spend on it. Do you know if the Supreme Court justices read your work? Do they ever comment on it? Do you receive notes or or comments physically uh, in their presence? I get occasionally feedback. It's not typically praise. It's typically, you know, the, the feedback you might get are things justices object to. But I have reason to think that many of the justices follow my work and those of my colleagues. The Supreme Court Press Corps does pretty good work. How uh, this goes along with some of the just this term is known as being contentious, this term, and uh, more recently has become seen as more partisan. And I know it's not supposed to be. It's difficult to say otherwise. And it's it's over the history. There, there are certainly, I mean, go back to Marbury v. Madison, where you see a very finely tuned opinion. And I'll point to a recent article of yours regarding capital punishment, the case of Wesley P. Kuntz Jr. that you wrote um in writing on the dissent, you noted that Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan, said that the majority had crossed a new bridge. And you quoted her in part saying that, to my knowledge, the court has never before denied such relief in a capital case where both parties have requested it, let alone where a new development has cast the decision below into such doubt. Do you see a new bridge? What do you see in here as we add new justices and as we are in this term Do you see what she wrote? So let's step back for a second. We do have a new development. It's not super new, but I trace it to 2010, where for the first time in American history, you had a closely divided court where all of the members of the majority, the conservative majority, were appointed by Republicans, and all of the members of the liberal 
minority were appointed by Democrats. That sounds kind of normal to us. That's the world in which we live, this polarized world. But it didn't used to be common on the Supreme Court. The party of the appointing president did not perfectly align with ideological commitments at the court until 2010. And you can just think back on the examples of justices appointed by Republican presidents who were liberals. Stevens, Souter, Warren, Blackman, Brennan. Uh, The counterexample of a conservative Democratic appointee is a little rarer, but Byron White is an example of that. The important point, though, was if all you told me was the party of the appointing president, historically, I could not typically tell you how that person was going to vote. Starting in 2010 and then amplified where where we had this 5-4 court, amplified by the arrival of Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, last year, we have a 6-3 court where if all you tell me is who, who the party of the appointing president was, I will tell you pretty reliably, not in every case, but across the run of cases, how they're likely to vote on ideologically controversial cases. And that polarization is unfortunate, bad for the court, and it gives rise to cases like the one you were discussing where you have this predictable lineup of the six Republican appointees in the majority in letting an execution go forward and the three Democratic appointees in the minority. Now, justices on both sides of the ideological spectrum will deny that what they're doing is politics. And I take them at their word. I I do think they're acting in good faith. And they may call it uh, judicial philosophy. Um, But... On some level, the label doesn't matter. Uh, What matters is the outcome. And the reason we have these incredibly intense confirmation fights in the Senate is because sophisticated politicians know that the justices they put on the Supreme Court will vote as those politicians think they will vote. And it will make no difference to Mitch McConnell whether this is a labeled political or partisan or ideological or judicial philosophy if the result is the one he wishes to obtain. So is it fair to say then that you are not surprised very often by the line of questioning and uh, when the arguments, especially as you anticipate in opinions, you feel as though right now you could pretty much anticipate which direction it will go? I might not go quite that far. And it, we, we have two justices now, the two newest justices who are still finding their way, Kavanaugh and Barrett, and I don't think we have quite enough information on them yet. And we did have a, a phase in which uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, delivered some surprising votes. So I don't think this is a rigid formula, and I think in given cases, you will have surprises. You had Justice Neil Gorsuch, a Trump appointee, quite conservative, writing the majority opinion in a statutory case on protections uh, for gay and transgender workers. You would not have predicted that based on who appointed him. So there will be surprises, but at the same time, there's a ton of political science data that says across the broad range of cases, uh, people do vote as the 
appointing president would like them to vote. We are speaking with Adam Liptak, United States Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times. We'll be right back. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. It's never too early to start exploring potential practice areas and building your network in the field. The Law Student Division provides students like you with resources and experiences aimed at helping them succeed in law school and prepare for what's next. Claim your full law student membership for just $25 by visiting ambar.org join. And we are back now with Adam Liptak, Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times. How does a law degree help you as a journalist? Not the Supreme Court part in understanding the law, that's more obvious, but as a journalist, how does a law degree help you and translate to the art of journalism? You know, I think it's a mixed thing. I think law school is pretty bad for your prose, and it makes you uh, prone to use jargon and to avoid clear English declarative sentences. So I think you have to resist a little bit of what legal training does for you. At the same time, the analysis you learn in law school and the structure of an argument is not wholly dissimilar from trying to figure out what the major elements of a journalistic piece are and how to put them together and to make sure that they make sense and they're not just a random array of quotes, but have a kind of through line. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't overemphasize uh, the value of legal training for journalism generally, uh, but there are some, some positive aspects to it. As law school students, we look to you and other reporters to understand what the court is saying. Who helps you interpret what the justices are saying? I hesitate because I I flatter myself to think that I can look at the primary materials, uh, look at the briefs and, and, and the arguments, and for the most part, in most areas of the law, uh, make sense of them myself and write with authority. And I wouldn't have, I've covered the court for 13 years. I wouldn't have said that in my first couple of years. But the court, while we think of it as a generalist court, actually returns to a fairly narrow slice of legal controversies over and over again. So you do get pretty good at it. Now, is there a case, a patent case, an ERISA case, where I might reach out to an expert uh, for a little briefing, a little explanation? Sure. But it's also the case that some of the most technical cases are also, thank God, some of the least newsworthy cases. So I'm sometimes capable of skipping them. Have you changed how you look at the law since becoming a Supreme Court correspondent for the New York Times? Almost certainly. And I've probably become a little more cynical. And I have also 
learned a lot about the things that concern the court the most, which are not obvious on some levels. I mean, we think of them as resolving these major social issues, uh, but the bread and butter of their work is statutory interpretation and various modes of federal jurisdiction. So I found myself, you know, learning quite a lot about that stuff. My background as a lawyer was in civil litigation with an emphasis on First Amendment matters. And I thought that was like a really big area of the law. And it turns out it's, you know, they haven't taken a, a press case in 20 years. Uh, so the things that you focus on as a litigator, your specialty or, or a lawyer of any kind, takes up a fairly small part of the bandwidth at the Supreme Court. Do you miss practicing law? Almost never. The part, I mean, different people enjoy different parts of the law. I enjoyed legal research and writing. I wrote a lot of briefs and I, I got real pleasure out of that. That that in a way is what I do now, legal research and writing, except, you know, faster with a bigger impact. The only time I remember ever missing practicing law was very early, even before I, I covered the court on the national, uh, covered the law on the national desk of the New York Times before I started covering the Supreme Court. And I remember interviewing a public defender about to uh, argue a death penalty case. And although in the form of a question, I thought I had a good idea of what the right argument was. And I conveyed that to this lawyer and she got up and she argued a different line of arguments which didn't succeed. And I kind of wanted to pop up and say, no, no, no. The point you want to be making is, but that's that's like the one time in 20 years where I thought I'd rather be practicing than writing. How about your next job? How about Supreme Court justice? Because the requirement is only to be trained <laughs> in the law. Uh, I, I think there are many, many reasons why that's not going to happen. <laughs> is there one case that has left an unshakable mark on your life, whether it was the people, the arguments, the decision? So there are two kinds of cases. There are cases that are just so huge that it's, you know, you're part of not part of, but an observer of a real historical moment. So when the court established a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, that was an earthquake in American life. And to be able to convey that news to the American public was a privilege. Uh, and, you know, there are other big cases like uh, the Supreme Court uh, for the first time uh, sustaining the Affordable Care Act, which also helped transform American society. And then there are things that I just covered before I started covering the Supreme Court, like life sentences for juveniles and campaign contributions to elected Supreme Court justices, state Supreme Court justices. So when the Supreme Court turns to those issues, I'm particularly interested in them. What is the number one book we all must read? I think my favorite book on the court is A History of Brown Against Board of Education called Simple Justice. Um, but other accessible books about the court are Tony Lewis's Gideon's Trumpet, Jeff Tubin's The Nine and The Oath, uh, and Noah Feldman's Scorpions. Those are all good places to get started. What's the most important law book, legal book on your desk besides the Constitution? Well, I have the Oxford uh, Encyclopedia of the Supreme Court. I'm probably not getting it exactly right, but that, that's a good, quick resource method. 
on Supreme Court procedure, the, you know, the standard treatise is Stern and Gressman. And it, it kind of depends on what the case is. Um, I just uh, finished reading a history of uh, Roe v. Wade and the woman behind it called The Family Rose. So it depends on what's going on, what I'm reading. I'm, I also just started Noah Feldman's book about Lincoln and the Constitution called The Broken Constitution about the transformative era of the Civil War and the post-Civil uh, War amendments. So, you know, you, you, try to, you try to keep up. Sounds like it's got to be hard, and not not hard in a difficult sense, but hard to turn it off. You're, it sounds as though even when on, on your free time, you're constantly trying to read and understand and and go back into history and constantly stay up on from every angle what you're going to be seeing in court. Well, the, the lucky thing is I don't view it as an obligation. I'm authentically interested and probably would be reading this stuff in my free time, even if it wasn't my day job. So I guess I'm lucky in that respect. I want to conclude today by asking your advice for law students today. The main thing I would say is don't put money at the top of the list. There are many, many legal jobs which, while well compensated, have a high level of drudgery associated with them and a lack of intellectual challenge, and also quite a few jobs where you're representing people who may well deserve representation, but not necessarily your representation. So you should stay open to the possibility of finding that job, which may not pay as well, but which lets you work on behalf of making society a better place as you see it, and engages your intellectual and moral juices, it's very easy to fall into the trap of getting a job as an associate which uh, pays you well and adjusting your lifestyle to that level of money so that when the phone rings and you have an opportunity to go into government service or some uh, civil rights group or, or, or something that's a little more directly valuable to the world. And you have to say, well, I can't afford to do that because I have a mortgage and I have, you know, these expenses. So while I think it's a great idea uh, for law students to get come out of law school and, and maybe work at a big firm for a number of years, uh, but to be careful not to think that is the lifestyle they will have forever because oftentimes the job that's more rewarding and more satisfying may require you to take a pay cut. And that's not always a bad thing. Thank you for your advice. Adam Liptak, United States Supreme Court correspondent for the New York Times. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember... U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. 
Join now at AmericanBard.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.